For the past three weeks, we have been looking at the question, what will this year bring, right? What will it bring for us personally in our individual lives? What, what will it bring for our church? We've activated universal law by setting themes and intentions for our lives. And we've discussed lots of tools of consciousness for living from our themes and bringing our intentions into our experiences The tools in their cute little mnemonic device memory jogger toolboxes have included the acronym LIFE, L-I-F-E, L, letting go of the past, I, imagining a greater life, F, freeing ourselves to choose, and E, expressing our divinity. And then we looked at the three R's, and we went over this, it is not reading, writing, and arithmetic. You young folks may not have heard that phrase before, but it exists. Um, What we looked at was refocusing our awareness, renewing our minds, and recommitting our hearts. And today, we'll look at our theme from a broader perspective. And the broader question this morning is, what will this year bring in our world? This feels like an appropriate way to end our series, especially since the Gandhi King season for nonviolence begins on January 30th. And boy, do we need it right now, huh? The Gandhi King season for nonviolence was initiated in 1998 by the Association for Global New Thought, and it was inspired by the 50th and 30th respective memorial anniversaries of Mahatma Gandhi and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s passing. This international movement shines and strives to honor their vision for an empowered, nonviolent world. And even though today we're looking at the broader, more global question of what this year will bring in the world, it still comes down to each individual, to each one of us. And a wonderful story that illustrates the connection between our individual world and the greater world is about a young mother, and it's one Saturday afternoon, and she's trying to work on getting the family taxes together, an experience which... I do not have because I married the numbers person, and I turned the numbers over to him and stepped away quickly. I'm the letters, he's the numbers. It's a beautiful thing. You can talk to him. Depends on what you want him for, but yeah, he's numbers guy. Um, So she's there trying to put her taxes together, and she's at her wit's end because her six-year-old daughter really wants her attention. Every five minutes, The child interrupts her with some new question. You remember that age. Why? How? When? I do remember it, and I loved it. And understandably, this this little one wants mom to play, as most kids do with their parents. But mom really can't play right now. She cut it down to the wire. She needs to get this done. So the mom sees a nearby magazine, and she starts rifling through it. And she sees a map of the world on one of the pages. So quickly she tears the map of the world from the magazine and tears it into multiple pieces and gives it to her daughter as a puzzle to put together, thinking, well, that'll keep her occupied for a while, right? Just a few minutes later, the little girl comes to her with the puzzle all put together. She said, how in the world did you do that so quickly? To which the little girl replied, Mom, on the other side of the map was a picture of a girl. All I had to do was put her together. When she came together, the whole world came together too. What a powerful mantra, right? When I am together, the whole world is together too. Doesn't that make you think about your role on this planet and just how great it is? When we are together, each of us as individuals, the world is together too. And I know 
I know it's really easy for us to fall into those us versus them mentalities, right? I see and experience it almost every day. It seems to be some kind of default setting we humans have. We keep a sort of tally of who's interrupting or frustrating or offending us throughout the day, sometimes emotionally reacting in the moment and sometimes letting things pile up until they reach critical mass and explode all over somebody. You don't think we do it daily? What about in the safety of our cars as we drive around town? It amazes me how easy it is to display those less-than-kind emotions from the driver's seat of our car where clearly no one else can see us, right? (laughs) I mean, we never notice other drivers who might be upset on the road, right? No. Yeah, that can be a tough one. That's a tough one to avoid. But it's when we draw a line between ourselves and another person, when we draw a line between our group and another group that we arguably begin to lose. Let me say that again because it's kind of a big thing. When we draw a line, when we create an us and them situation, we immediately begin to lose. You don't think so? I want you to think. Can you tell me about a single time when you didn't feel kind of cruddy in the midst of a struggle with someone. No matter the outcome of the conflict, both sides feel bad during the exchange. Both sides feel uncomfortable during the exchange. And to me, that's a big loss. It's a loss of unity, a loss of kindness, a loss of harmony, a loss of happiness. And the truth is, if we desire to live in a nonviolent world this year, we must be nonviolent. Now, I'm sure that very few people in this room, if any, think of themselves as violent people, right? There aren't any of us here who still get involved in fist fights, right? Maybe prize fights, but that's a whole different thing. Anybody? No? Okay, because I was going to wager a bet. But I'm also sure that many of us have made choices that are less than peaceful, less than loving, less than kind, less than compassionate. So even though we might not like to admit it, we might not like to look at it, and we might not even think it's true, every time we do that, we add to the collective consciousness of violence, hate, and fear. And every time we are kind and compassionate and loving and peaceful, we add to the collective harmony and peace of the world. In every spiritual um, tradition, it is believed that peace must exist in one's heart before it can exist in the outer world. Patanjali, the ancient Indian sage, once said, when a person is established in nonviolence, those in his vicinity cease to feel hostility. That is how Gandhi lived his life. He opposed injustice, violence, hatred with one thing, love. He strove to embody, if you will, the noble love of Jesus, the noble love of Buddha. And a story goes that one day Gandhi went into a village where there was a bitter, rage-filled man who was well known for attacking people in anger. That was his default setting. And when this man saw Gandhi, recognizing him, he boldly walked up to him, grabbed him by the neck, and began choking him. And the people there were horrified. It is said that there was not even a flicker of hostility in Gandhi's eyes. Neither a word of protest nor an act of defense came forth from him. Rather, 
he met the man's eyes and yielded himself completely to the flood of love within him. And in a few short moments, the man broke down like a child and fell sobbing at his feet. The people around him thought it was a miracle, but for Gandhi, who was used to miracles of love, it only proved for the hundredth time in his own life, it proved the depths of the words of the compassionate Buddha. Hatred does not cease by hatred at any time. Hatred ceases only by love. This is an unalterable law. You might say, well, that's Gandhi. He was a saint, courageous and loving and compassionate beyond normal human capabilities. I'm not like him. Well, neither was he always. As a boy and young man, he was shy and fearful. And he once wrote, I used to be very shy and avoided all company. My books and my lessons were my sole companions. I would run home from school. My God, somebody might speak to me. That was my daily habit. I literally ran back because I could not bear to talk to anyone. Moreover, I was a coward. I used to be haunted by the fear of thieves and ghosts and serpents. I did not dare to stir out of doors at night. Darkness was a terror for me. It was almost impossible for me to sleep in the dark, as I would imagine ghosts coming from one direction, thieves from another, and serpents from a third. I could not, therefore, bear to sleep without a light on in the room. Perhaps those fears are what made him for a while into a domineering sometimes petulant man. He believed that it was his right to impose his will upon others, namely his wife. His wife objected to his unilateral approach, whereupon Gandhi became even more adamant about imposing his will upon her, but she had an intuitive grasp of the properties of nonviolent love. And during those tumultuous years of domestic strife, she proved to be Gandhi's equal. Her attitude transformed his relationship with her and in the process revealed to him the beauty and the power of nonviolent resistance, of nonviolent love. And he wrote these words. He said, I learned the lesson of nonviolence from my wife when I tried to bend her to my will. Her determined resistance to my will on the one hand and her quiet submission to the suffering, my stupidity involved on the other ultimately made me ashamed of myself and cured me of my stupidity. In the end, she became my teacher in nonviolence. Did you know about that story? Most people don't. So Gandhi wasn't always Mr. Love. He didn't always have it together. But he got real with himself. He got clear and he practiced what he called self-purification. In other words, he worked on his stuff. He transformed himself. That's, that's the essence of today's message. Only you can make the change. Only you can make the world seem right. I have to be transformed before the world can be transformed. Each of us has to be transformed together if the world is to be transformed. So how do we do that? The Apostle Paul told us how very clearly and exactly, and it's used so many times in our teachings here that I would imagine it's kind of become a cliche. We used it last week. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he told us how. Put on the mind that was in Christ Jesus. And if 
You don't like the term Christ? He could have just as easily said, put on the mind that was in the Buddha. Or he could have easily said, put on the enlightened mind. Because that is the essence of the God that is within you. That is the essence of spirit, which has and always will reside within you. So if you put on that God mind that is within you, and you focus that on everything that you see and do, then you will and the world will be transformed. One of our members sent me a link to an article recently, and it was entitled, Why Ending the World Hasn't Worked. And it said, peace movements have tried three ways for bringing war to an end. First, activism. The approach of putting political pressure on governments that wage war. Activism involves protests and public demonstrations, lobbying and political commitment. Almost every war creates some kind of peace movement opposed to it. Why has it failed? Because the protesters are not heard. Because they are far outnumbered by the war interests in society. Because their idealism turns to anger and violence. Activism has left us with the ironic picture of outraged peacemakers who wind up contributing to the total sum of violence in the world. And the second approach is humanitarianism, the approach of helping the victims of war. Bringing relief to victims is an act of kindness and compassion. As embodied by the International Red Cross, this effort is ongoing and attracts thousands of volunteers worldwide. Every nation on earth approves of humanitarianism. But why has it failed in stopping war? Because humanitarians are wildly outnumbered by soldiers and war makers. Because of finances, the International Red Cross's annual budget of $1.8 billion is a tiny fraction of the military budgets around the world. Because the same countries that wage war also conduct humanitarian efforts, keeping the two activities very separate. Because humanitarians show up on the scene after the war has already begun. And finally, the third way, personal transformation. The approach of ending the war one person at a time. This idea suggests that war begins in each human heart and can only end there. Why has that failed? because hardly anyone has really tried it. Gandhi is often attributed with making the statement, you must be the change that you wish to see in the world, but what he actually said is something much, much deeper. He said, we but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies of the world would also change. As a man changes with his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change toward him. This is a divine mystery supreme, a wonderful thing, and it is the source of our happiness. We need not wait and see what others do. That's different than that abbreviated quote, isn't it? Ernest Holmes wrote, let us realize if the world is healed of war and brought into peace, it won't have been because guns were bigger and better or more of them. We need them until it does heal itself, but that will come to pass only because somewhere along the line, the balance of the scales of eternal truth shall fall on the side of peace. 
Let us, you and me, pray for peace and let us make our hearts fit to accept it when it comes. Let us make our intellect and our soul and our will and our feeling ready to receive it and embrace it before it even comes. Let us, in the stillness of our own soul, go back to that ineffable presence which is peace and proclaim it, even in the midst of confusion, that peace which is the power at the heart of God. So, Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world all at once, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. Any small, calm thing that one soul can do to help another, it assists some portion of this suffering world and will help immensely. It is not given to us to know which acts or by whom will cause the critical mass to tip toward an enduring good. What is needed for a dramatic change is an accumulation of acts, adding and adding more and more continuously. We know that it does not take everyone on earth to bring justice and peace, but only a small, determined group who will not give up during the first, second, or hundredth dark hour. World-changing anthropologist Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I want to share with you a true story. And I had to piece all this information together from all kinds of different sources and short articles. And I even had to consult a mini documentary and transcribe stuff. So it it was an undertaking, but this is all factual. Sergeant Ike Brown is a former special agent of the Jacksonville Sheriff's Department. And his firstborn son, Ike Jr., was killed in cold blood at the age of 21. His son and a friend were visiting the home of an acquaintance, and while the young, man's, young men sat on a couch playing video games, the killer, Takoya Kreiner, armed with a gun, was sitting quietly in the back room. The surviving witness said that all of a sudden he began to hear shots and he instinctively dove to the floor, that nothing had happened to provoke the attack. Ike said, My son's death didn't catch God by surprise, but it caught me, Ike, by surprise. I learned that it is in the middle of our most severe conflict that our faith is tested most. After losing his son, he found that he had no one to turn to. His family was torn with grief. He was angry. He wanted revenge. He wasn't sure how he would be able to face his son's killer in a courtroom when the trial began. And the trial did begin. A full three years after his son's funeral, he finally had to face his son's killer. He says, I always said, you hurt my child, you hurt my family, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I'd even convinced myself that God would want me to get you. But he comes out, and I'm seeing him for the first time, And I loved him. Never seen him before. Didn't know his family, you know. Didn't know his background. But I loved him. I still can't explain it. I didn't have the feelings I thought I would have. And choking back tears, much like me in this moment, he continued. He said, I know for sure now it was God's love, you know. God's grace. And later on I would say to myself, wow, he's doing something in me that I didn't even know was taking place Because I questioned myself, what's wrong with me? Why don't I feel the way I thought I would feel? But through my whys and wondering, I still trusted that God was in control. And I just forgave him. 
He showed up every day of that trial and was in the courtroom the day Tokoya was found guilty. He says, after Tokoya was sentenced and he was taken off to prison, he was in my prayers. I wondered how it was going for him. How is he surviving? And so I would write letters and I would throw them away. I thought, you know, he didn't want to hear from me. He'd probably be thinking, I don't want to hear from you. I'm serving three life sentences. And then one day I decided I'm going to write a letter and I'm going to send it to him. And I did just that. I said, hello, this is Mr. Brown. I hope things there are as good as they can be. I hope all is well. And I let him know that he was always in my prayers and that we'd always be mindful of him and thinking of him. And at the end I said, I'm going to ask you for a favor. I miss my son, Ike Jr. Sorry, the mom in me breaks up at this. I miss my son, Ike Jr., and I want you to fill in for him until we all get to heaven. We can write, we can talk, we can laugh. And I said, if not, I'll I'll be able to let you off the hook. I'll understand. It took about a month, but he got a letter back. And he said he was terrified to open it, but he did. And it said, Dear Mr. Brown, I now know that God is real. And I told God that if I heard from you, I would give my life to him for the rest of my days. You asked me to fill in for Ike Jr. I'm not qualified. But if you'll have me, from this point on, you're my dad and I'm your son. Kreiner, that killer turned by love into son. He said, this man, Mr. Brown, who I've come to know and grew to love and now call my dad, my father. You know, God has a plan. We're just characters playing a part and a role. This was an opportunity. God was using us as vessels to show the world what love truly is. At first it was strange, but over time I came to realize that it was beautiful. And that love that I had began to grow more and more. And talking about the first time they were able to see each other in person, he says, he came running up. I didn't know what to expect, but he came running up and wrapped me in a bear hug. And I'm standing there in shackles and chains, and he wrapped me up and told me that he loved me. And that's when I knew it was real. We're just flesh and blood mortal beings. We're given a lot of things we don't deserve, and that's what grace is. Brown goes on to say that Jesus taught us that if we ask for forgiveness, we're given it. We just have to believe in God, trust God. How about that? You know, many people would say that's a story about forgiveness, and I agree, but I think it's even bigger. It's about peace. I know I spend a lot of my time up here talking about how forgiveness is a choice, and that's something I will stand by until my very last breath, uh, because it's something which has been proven to me in my life over and over again. It is something that I have practiced, and it's not always easy, but it's always achievable. And it's also been proven to me over and over and over that when you um, consistently make the choice to forgive, you start to find that you no longer have reason to forgive. You start to find that you no longer have reason to forgive because you don't start building a wall of hate or resentment or anger or indignation or revenge or any other negative emotion in the first place. You don't have to forgive because you're no longer keeping score. And that, my friends, truly is peace. I'd like to conclude today with a prayer from the Gandhi King Season of Nonviolence website. Infinite Spirit, 
I call upon your power, wisdom, and compassion. The power that calls the universe into form. The wisdom that brings forth order and balance. The compassion that establishes healing, justice, and beloved community. Make me aware of my own prejudices. Shine a light upon any forms of violence in thought, word, or deed in which I am engaging. Grow in me the seeds of nonviolence. Teach me in the ways of peacemaking. Show me daily how I can do my part to fulfill humanity's dream of peace on earth. Through the growing practice of nonviolence, I stand firm in my belief that it is truly possible for all people to live in freedom, justice, and plenty. I pray for divine direction. I commit to do my part. I know the future of our planet and all people depend on this great mission. I accept this. I know this. And it is so. Amen.